Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this episode, we take a look at an interesting False Claims Act enforcement action involving Verizon. Go across the pond to look at the resignation of Luis Rubiales as the head of the Soccer Federation of Spain and the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom. Of course, Florida Man makes an appearance. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grant Hart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and this week we're covering the UK's review of the treatment of politically exposed persons, new guidance from the DOJ on acceptable payments for foreign government official travel, the end of the saga of the Spanish kiss heard around the world, and Florida man who is back at it again, this time on a homemade hamster wheel trying to cross the ocean. But first, Tom, how has your week been? What's been the most interesting developments? Well, my most interesting developments was I attended my 40th law school reunion this past weekend. Oh, fun. I love that. Yeah. So uh, it was very cool. Got to see some old friends and reconnect, see some great sports. Did I mention Texas beat Alabama? And otherwise, all good. Fantastic. I love that. Where are we starting today? Well, let's start with. The Department of Justice, who uh, resolved a False Claims Act claim um, from Verizon Business Networks. And what was most interesting about this, Christy, was, uh, first of all, a $4 million plus fine. But the fine was for failure to implement cybersecurity controls, as Verizon Business Networks is a contractor to the U.S. Uh, federal government. And this is the first time I can recall a fine and penalty for failure to implement cybersecurity controls. There was a whistleblower involved, uh, so I assume there'll be some sort of remuneration under the False Claims Act. But uh, this is, I think, uh, pretty groundbreaking. And certainly every company that does business with the federal government needs to be aware of this um, and whether this will move to public companies or others not contracting with the government uh, perhaps is an open question, but it's not an open question if you're doing business with the federal government. This was not a breach. This was not a data privacy violation. This was the failure to implement effective controls. So uh, I thought this was um, very interesting. Like I said a couple of times, if you're doing business with the federal government, you have to have uh, appropriate cyber controls and if you don't, you're opening up yourself and your organization to a, a fairly significant fine and penalty. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, Tom, especially if you look at this in light of the new SEC uh, requirements for disclosures of things like cyber issues that happen at the company or you know, the, the need to make sure that your controls are in place. Um, the DOJ and SEC do seem very in sync on this. 
um, in, in different ways. One is in an enforcement action, one in more you know, guidance and rule setting. But I think that uh, continues to reinforce the cyber is here to stay element of all of this. Um, and, and really, especially with federal contracting, uh, how important that is. And I think it really is important what you said too, Tom, that this isn't a breach. This isn't um, a response to some sort of uh, meltdown. This is actually just, you didn't do the controls and we need you to have done them. So really interesting stuff there, I think. Christy, let's move uh, across the pond over to the uh, United Kingdom for the uh, Financial Control Authority uh, has had some interesting uh, comments based upon, um, or Financial Conduct Authority, I should say, interesting comments based upon uh, really a story that's been going on for two or three months now in the United Kingdom. You want to tell us about that? I do indeed. Uh, so the first article I want to review comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's titled UK Financial Regulator to Review Bank Treatment of Politically Exposed Persons. Now, the subtitle was really what caught my eye as it says, the review comes after a private bank's decision to close the account of Brexit proponent Nigel Farage. Um, I find this one just so interesting. So the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, which is usually known as the FCA, um, is examining whether domestic politically exposed persons in the UK, uh, frequently known as PEPs, might be getting unfairly cut off from banking services. So here's what happened. Farage banked with a fancy bank by, favored by high net worth individuals and the royals called Coots. So in July, Coots cut him off, saying it was because he fell below the wealth threshold. Well, the bank's parent is 39% owned by the UK government. So Farage filled out a government access request uh, and was able to receive the minutes from the meeting that the bank had about his account. Well, turns out that they were cutting off his account because of the reputational risk to the bank for banking with him. So minutes from the meeting of the bank's Wealth Reputation Risk Committee described Farage's views as, quote, xenophobic and racist, unquote, and that he was, quote, considered by many to be a disingenuous grifter, unquote. Um, I can confirm that there are many, many people in the UK that would concur with that position. Certainly not all. The FCA is concerned that PEPs may become unbankable in the UK, and that would lead to potential unfairness and harm in the UK's financial services sector. So the FCA will publish its review next June, but may take action against banks sooner if it identifies a problem in the institution's policies. So, Tom, all right, Nigel Cross aside, I found this uh, really interesting. So I must say that when we talk about PEPs in third party screening, it's one of the most difficult things I think to deal with because our clients will call us and say, you know, this PEP's been identified, but they're very tangentially involved or they were in the ministry five years ago and our deal has nothing to do with that. What do we do now? So I think that the UK is in some way dealing with that same question compliance officers have all the time. What do you think about dealing with PEPs and about practicality of how we respond to that? So this has been a really interesting story. Jonathan Armstrong and I talked about it from the data privacy perspective, but the bank put itself in a pretty difficult position. Um, first, obviously, is reputational issues. Uh, second was the way they handled uh, their interactions with Mr. Farage and their communications to the rest of us, i.e. the public, um, first, that he didn't meet the criteria for being a high wealth individual. I don't know whether that was true or not, but that was the excuse used. 
and um, that was not sufficient. Um, banks traditionally have been able to sort of fire customers literally at will, and this case may change that. Um, I often say there's a well-known maxim in the trial lawyer world that bad facts make bad law. Well, bad facts can change law, and that may be what's happened here, and it may put more power in the hands of customers and certainly going to require banks to be more thoughtful in this process and have a true and justifiable business reason for doing so. Um, whether someone's statements about racism or other things that get a bank in trouble reputationally are going to be enough, I think at this point it's still an open question, but it's certainly become more difficult for banks to do this. And if it changes banks' relationships with their customers so that they have to, banks have to engage in some sort of due process to basically fire a customer, um, it's going to uh, also impact money laundering and uh, other nefarious activities. So I think we're just going to have to, as the Brits would say, watch this space. <laughs> Do you think that this is going to expand into uh, American banks? Do you think that it'll expand outside of the UK or do you think this is really a UK specific thing? Well, the um, underlying issue uh, or the underlying law that uh, the UK bank broke was GDPR and now whatever the UK equivalent of GDPR is, which we don't have in the United States. But typically we see innovations uh, move literally both ways across the Atlantic. And if the FCA is going to become more involved in this and require more rigor for banks, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, US regulators at least begin, begin to think in that direction, although the underlying law which um, Mr. Farage based his defense or his his allegations on doesn't exist in the U.S. that I'm aware of. Yeah. Shall we move from the U.K. to Singapore? What do you think? Well, we don't move to Singapore. We move to our never-ending, never-leaving-us, always-great 1MDB. It still lives, <laughs> and it will continue to live. Um, and this part of the story involves uh, former uh, Goldman Sachs um, managing partner, um, uh, Roger Ung. And Mr. Ung, of course, was convicted of uh, money laundering and FCPA violations in the U.S. court. And the Singapore Banking Authority has banned him for life. Uh, the phrase day late and a dollar short certainly comes to mind. Nevertheless, um, I applaud Singapore's actions here. Um he, uh, they waited until there was a criminal conviction uh, to ban him. It does show there are consequences to these types of actions. Um, and it just amazes me that nearly 15 years or at least 12 years after 1MDB got up and rolling, we're still talking about it. And we're going to continue to talk about it because uh, Mr. Ong is facing some additional issues. Um, his former boss and uh, partner um, are uh, is, is going to be sentenced. And Goldman Sachs, I think, is still feeling some of the fallout. So I guess the thing that amazed me the most is that uh, it's the case that keeps on giving. But Tom, you know, you and I talked about Singapore on a, a recent 
version of the podcast where we were looking at the FCPA blogs article, um, I think it was Henry and Henry Casson, right? About, you know, where did my beloved Singapore go? And is it uh, still the wonderful hub of non-corruption that it used to be? Or is it just a different place? Has it gone underground, et cetera, et cetera? Do you think that this has any commentary about that in terms of the fact that they are paying attention to it now or they weren't previously? Would you see any kind of um, commentary on what's going on there? Well, I think it is a statement by Singapore of trying to rectify some of the issues that you just raised, Christy. I'm not sure it raises the bar because um, it was pretty low-hanging fruit to ban a convicted felon, (laughs) uh, particularly a convicted felon around 1MDB for life. Uh, I guess... It's a step in the right direction, whether they follow it up in some of the other areas that you have uh, articulated is once again, an open question, but it's certainly uh, an appropriate first step. Yeah. Lots of interesting stuff going on in the world. Uh, UK, Singapore slash Malaysia. Let's move over into foreign government officials (laughs) back to the U.S. Um, My next story comes from our friend Michael Volkov, and it's titled FCPA opinion release provides guidance on payments of travel and other expenses for foreign government officials. So this article relates to the DOJ's recent opinion release. Um, And an opinion release occurs when someone writes to the DOJ and says, hey, I'd like you to opine publicly uh, on my actions, see if it's okay or not. So it gives the opportunity for the DOJ to give that kind of guidance in a format that's outside of an official policy or enforcement action. In this case, the requester was an adoption agency that places children from overseas into U.S. families. So foreign government officials uh, had requested that the agency pay for them to visit some of those families where the children were being placed. So the requester was seeking to find out if the uh, parameters that they had self-put on their trips on these payments were going to be acceptable to the DOJ so that they wouldn't open themselves up to prosecution for paying for these travel expenses. Um, And the DOJ endorsed their approach. Uh, So I think this is highly useful for compliance officers because it gives us really clear parameters on which to base our policies. So the approved plan included paying economy class airfare, mid-range hotel accommodation, local transport and meals, right? Good. Um, They were also allowed to pay for visits to museums and cultural sites with a cost not exceeding $100 per day. Uh, Of course, there were going to be no per diems or cash payments or compensation to the foreign officials or the agency. And interestingly to me, the requester was not to choose the specific foreign official to travel. One would assume that that means that they're not benefiting any specific individual with the travel that they were creating. So I think this is a pretty great list, Tom, to draw policies from uh, for paying for the travel of government officials. Do you think companies should wholesale adopt these guidelines for their policies or how should they tweak them? What, what, how does this uh, affect what companies should do? Well, I've not received a formal diagnosis of schizophrenia, but I'm really on two minds of this opinion release. The first okay. is bookending it with the 3M FCPA enforcement action, mm. uh, because that also involved travel and entertainment. So, uh, This case shows us, or the opinion release, I should say, shows us how to do it and how to do it right. Having said that, the rules around travel, entertainment, and gifts were established in 2007. Uh, The DOJ had two opinion releases, public knowledge. Everybody knows what they are. I've written about it. You've written about it. The rules haven't changed in literally uh, since 07. So on the other hand, 
You know, this is something that's been known for quite some time. But there's uh, perhaps another way to look at it, which is the opinion uh, release procedure is very rarely used, apparently. Uh, I've never done it. I've advised clients on it, but they've always chosen not to. I don't know if you've had that opportunity or not, but it can be a way to give your organization comfort of what they're trying to do. The um, adoption agency business is a very personal and even intimate business because literally you're adopting a child and someone um, uh, has given up that child. And the adoption agencies or departments in the country of origin of the baby, they have a vested interest in making sure that that child is safe and secure and with a family that's going to raise them appropriately. So having them come to visit families in the United States, I think, is is a, a routine business, a part of their business. Um, and so I think with all of those factors, the personal nature of adoption agencies, the critical nature for families who can't have children. Um, I one time traveled to China to a town called Wuhan, and there was a, a large um, sort of adoption agency there. And, and at the hotel every morning, there would be a family with a new baby. And it was great joy for those families. And um so I know the power of that, you know, I'm a dad as well. So um, I think all of those factors may have led to um, at least the DOJ releasing, considering this and releasing this opinion uh, release uh, so that uh, it would give the adoption agency some comfort. The, uh, the other thing though, that I would want to note from this opinion release is you can, and let me repeat that you can, uh, pay for some non-business entertainment. It has to be reasonable. Uh, can they go to a football game, a baseball game, a basketball game? Yes. Can they go to the World Series, uh, the NFL championship, or the NBA finals? No. But if it's reasonable and it's a small amount of the time uh, of an overall trip, say 10 or 20%, I think, once again, that's going to be considered reasonable, and the DOJ is going to approve that, and they've approved that here. So if uh, you are planning that type of trip, you can um, have some comfort that you can entertain outside of business uh, people who travel, you pay for travel to the United States. So uh, I'm still kind of of two minds because the rules were set on this a long, long time ago. And we've had actually other opinion releases on adoption agencies. So, um, but it's never, it's never bad to uh, kind of revisit these lessons. And if we think of it as a bookend to whether by design or not 3M, you know, it certainly shows that you can do what 3M did illegally. It can be done some, some of it business entertainment uh, within the context of legally under the FCPA. Yeah, I definitely picked up on exactly the same point you did about that museum and cultural events at the $100 threshold. I thought that was really beneficial and useful specifically. Um, and yes, I actually did work with a client um, that sought an OFAC opinion release um, that was very helpful and useful for them. So um, we, we didn't, I'm, I'm not a lawyer in a law firm dealing with OFAC, but that was one of those times where they thought, you know, is this on the line? Is this okay? And it was really useful to get that. So I'm glad we have this information from the DOJ. 
um, just, you know, reiterates what we know, but also is more detailed to help us get there instead of just looking at the enforcement actions that tell us don't, don't, don't. It's nice sometimes to see do, do, do. Um, for my next story, I wanted to look uh, once again uh, at some accounting issues. And this one is FASB adopted some crypto accounting and disclosure rules. Um, typically, uh, we don't talk about FASB or crypto on this pod, but I wanted to, in this case, in a story from the Wall Street Journal, this time the CFO Journal, Mike Maurer, Mark Maurer reporting that the Financial Accounting Standards Board has set a new rule on <clears throat> cryptocurrency accounting and disclosure, which uh, applies to companies holding these assets so that they can more accurately reflect their financial condition. A problem has been there's no specific rules for accounting or disclosure of crypto assets in the United States, and FASB has now given us uh, some rules that we can go by. And I find that, um, or I believe rather, that this will help companies, and if they're ever challenged on their standards for how they're valuing crypto assets, it is, uh, they can point to this, and uh, hopefully that will be uh, at least a good starting point. So the crypto world is completely up in the air. Uh, we've had enforcement actions around NFTs. We've obviously had enforcement ar actions around crypto exchanges and cryptocurrency. Uh, it's still not clear whether it's a security or an investment or something else. Uh, but I think this was a good first step. I applaud FASB for doing this. Many companies, uh, I don't want to say have heavily invested in crypto, at least public companies, but they may have dabbled and they may have uh, took some assets and positions to see where, where it all might go. And um, this gives them a basis to account for them and value them uh, as part of their overall investment or asset portfolio. It was really interesting, that article, uh, because I, I don't spend a lot of time in the accounting world. I'm, I'm a lawyer, not an accountant, and uh, happily so. But the explanation of why it was such a big problem when it sort of is a, if it's if it's an asset, but it never really changes value in your books until it's bought or sold, then that it really isn't reflecting properly what, where the company's position is from a financial standpoint. Um, I think that I think that this continues to lead us down the path that we are going to end up with more and more of the crypto regulation, which always makes me laugh because the whole reason for people buying it originally was because it's unregulated. Um, but I don't think that's the direction we're going. I think we are very clearly going in a more regulated direction. And all this, though this is rules as opposed to uh, regulations or, or things that can be enforced, I think that this is really a powerful movement in the right direction, as I, I agree with you, from the cryptocurrency perspective. Did it, by the way, Tom, it's not covered in, uh, we're not actually covering this one. I, I thought about it though. Did you see that the crypto person from Turkey had 8,000 years in prison that he was assigned? Uh, actually, it was 11,196 years. <laughs> so you talk about deterrence. <laughs> oh, that extra 3,000 years I got wrong. Sorry about that. But um, that's, It's unclear you know. when his first parole hearing will be. <laughs> Right. Okay. Um, all right. Let's switch from uh, from crypto into the AI space. So this one was, I just thought this was so interesting. So uh, my next article was published in the PLI Chronicles and it's entitled AI and Employment Privacy Regulation is Here. So it's written by a partner and associate at my former law firm of Gibson Dunn. Shout out to my friends and colleagues there and uh, kudos to this, uh, the writers for this fascinating article. So it explores the nexus between the use of artificial intelligence in employment uh, relating to data privacy. 
So really, truly, this area is in its infancy. Um, but if your company is either using or thinking about using AI for things like choosing applicants to be interviewed, verifying identities through biometric feedback, you really want to be paying attention. So it goes through a couple of the laws, but really highlights two of them. And the first one is in Illinois, and it's called the Biometric Information Privacy Act. Um, it requires a whole host of disclosures and consents, including things like a requirement for publicly available written policies that establish a retention schedule for personal biometric information. Now, obviously, that's not going to apply to a whole lot of companies at this moment, but just think about who knows that, right? Like if your HR person is, says, oh, fantastic, we're going to do all this bio things, um, do they know to look up that law? Do they know to look up the requirements and the disclosures and the consents and all the rest of it? Um, and of course, we then have California. So California's new privacy regulator, the California Privacy Protection Agency, or CCPA, is intensely focused on privacy regulation when it comes to the use of AI. So it's tasked with enforcing the California Consumer Privacy Act, which now, uh, as of recently, uh, encapsulates and covers uh, employee data as well. So uh, the Gibson Dunn article notes that the CPPA is defining personal data extremely broadly, uh, which they say is actually going beyond the EU's Artificial Intelligence Act and the European GDPR, which is just, oh my goodness, <laughs> how wowzer. Um, Tom, I think companies need to tread extremely carefully with AI decision-making and employment, and especially with all that sensitive personal data regarding you know, biometrics. Um, this disclosure and consent requirements are onerous, and your company doesn't want to get them wrong, especially because like the, the BIPA or BIPA, I'm not sure how it's said, um, that one has $1,000 to $5,000 per instance penalties. You can imagine if they looked at 100 or 200 or 500 applicants and got all of those wrong, just how fast those fines would, would uh, pile up. So I think, you know, compliance officers need to talk to HR, especially about this topic. What what it would be your recommendations for doing that successfully? So the um, one of the key problems with AI, uh, particularly generative AI, is you're not, you don't always know what algorithms have been incorporated by that AI to make a decision. So if you don't know that, um, there could be unknown bias. And uh, the only way to determine if there's unknown bias is to take a retrospective look to see, oops, every minority candidate was rejected by AI. Um, wonder why that was. Um, so that's sort of problem number one. On the flip side, there was the case of the MIT, MIT student, an Asian American who created, uh, ask AI to create a photograph of her for a business, uh, for a resume. And uh, it did. And it came back as a, came back as a white woman. So um, query, does that, what does that say? Uh, so there's lots of problems here and the uh, HR has to tread very, very, very carefully. Because in addition to the California law and the Illinois biometric law that you cited, Christy, I think basic EEOC law is going to be yeah. impacted here. And um, if companies can't show there's no bias in uh, the AI part of the selection process, that certainly uh, could be one problem. And then do companies have to disclose to a potential candidate, our AI rejected you, not a human? And if so, could that lead to potential litigation or at least other reputational issues? So this one is hugely fraught. And, uh, but I really hope 
it will lead to a much broader discussion because I'm sure you and I have read innumerable job openings, which say something like uh, top 25%, top five law school, you know, 10 years, U.S. public company, GC experience, uh, all of this stuff that's just completely unrealistic. And companies need to become more nuanced in their approaches. Uh, the whole uh, uh, discussion around you have to have that stupid piece of paper called a college degree um, to be successful. Uh, this 25 years in one industry override not having a college degree. Uh, all of these things as the workforce evolves. And then, then let me overlay what I think is the critical issue in all of this discussion is I've talked to a lot of, of corporate types and they universally say that it will be talent acquisition and retention, which is the key business differentiator in 2030 going forward. That's because of increased use of data, increased use of tech, increased use of skills that uh, are only being created now. It will be uh, a very different, uh, obviously, generational change in workforce from people like me to people like you to people like my daughter. Um, it's going to be very, very different. And if you can't evaluate talent based on the talent, uh, your company may not exist. It may be an existential crisis for your company. So this is something that is going to involve lots of discussions with compliance and HR, lots of discussions, I think more generally in the corporate world of how, how we look at talent, how we evaluate talent, how we acquire talent and how we maintain talent. And of course, you and I are going to talk about culture, 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 culture. Uh, so yes, yes. yes. So um, I think it's a part of a much broader discussion, but we absolutely have to have that discussion now. Shall we move from California and Illinois to Texas? And I'm just going to start with uh, Christie's show notes. Quote, I don't know where to start with this one. End quote. Uh, brilliant. And of course, we're talking about the impeachment of current sitting Attorney General Ken Paxton. For those of you who love salaciousness, this is it. We've got sex. We've got rock and roll. You don't have any drugs yet, but we're rocking and rolling. So we're into the second week of the Ken Paxton impeachment. It is a sordid tale of uh, the slow creep of corruption. Um, he's alleged to have been bribed by a private citizen to uh, get that private citizen out of some both civil and criminal legal issues. Um, the bribes were payments or, or construction of uh remodeling of homes, perhaps some payments, Uber rides, uh, hiring a, a paramour, uh, lots of great details. The uh, defense seems to be, so what? Uh, this is Texas. The voters elected him. No big deal. Um, and it really shows uh, the invidiousness of corruption. And whether or not you believe he was corrupt when he started, you see the creep of this uh, individual citizen who uh, either has some hold over him or uh, for some ideological or monetary reason, Paxton was able to do his bidding uh, to the point where the top law enforcement official for the attorney general's office, who was a Texas Ranger, basically said, if you do this, you're going to be criminally indicted. Well, 
he did it and he was he uh, is now impeached. So uh, the defense is going to start probably um, sometime this week. Uh, we're more, uh, about two thirds way through. It's going to be very, very interesting to see what the Texas Senate does. But it's just been a sordid tale and uh, hopefully a cautionary tale as well. And one worthy of the great state of Texas. <laughs> um, reading that article, it was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, I like that the defense is going to show receipts at, from Home Depot that show that they went themselves like buy screws or something. I mean, does that really tell you that it didn't happen? I mean, really? The fact that they went to Home Depot too? Well, uh, you know, they have said that from day one. And and um, when you say something in an op opening statement, whether it's a civil trial, civil trial, whether it's a criminal trial or a uh, impeachment, you better have evidence to back that up. And if they have records of him buying the materials at Home Depot with a receipt, with the materials needed for his home remodeling, you know, that might put a different spin on things. Uh, we have not seen that evidence. It was not released publicly. They've said they've had it. And if they don't have it, it is going to be really, really bad. But they've maintained that. And, you know, if they come with a receipt with enough lumber to do the home remodeling, maybe it puts a new light on things. But um, if you say something like that in opening, you darn well better have something to back it up when your turn comes. Yeah, well. Your your cynic on the other side is thinking that they'll have a receipt for you know some uh, some cleaner and some paper towels, but we'll see what happens. Uh, Kevin knows we'll find out. Yep. All righty, let's move on to a, an article from Inc. Magazine entitled "Is It Time to Update Your Company's Dress Code? What Business Casual Means Today." So, Tom, I chose this article not because of a desire to discuss fashion with you on this podcast. Um, but because of the point made in the article about how dress codes affect morale and culture in the workplace. So the article encourages employers to loosen up their dress codes or even to eliminate it with the theory that it makes employees happier. So uh, the article points to post-pandemic studies showing that employees are more productive when they feel positively about their clothes which led to them saying people who are happy at work tend to stay where they are, which leads to better retention rates and typically better retention rates and happy employees are people who are working in a good culture. So kind of add these pieces together. Now, the article cautions that written guidelines about appropriateness are always useful as relying on everyone's judgment can be problematic. Don't we all know that from any single policy that says reasonable and how many minds disagree on what that means? Um, and the article also notes that modern dress codes should not refer to gender, such as women should wear heels and skirts. It should say, uh, use the term employees instead of women or men. Now, one employer quoted in the article said that, quote, restrictive clothing is inherent to restrictive thinking, unquote, which is counterproductive to the creative line of work that her employees are in. And the article quotes a founder of a human resources and hiring company who says, quote, changing the dress code is the best perk that costs zero dollars. There are no downsides to loosening a dress code, unquote. Um, I'm not 100% sure I agree with there are no downsides depending on who you've got to work. Now, I was just thinking back, this made me think about the dress codes in my life, not not like the uniforms. Um, but, you know, when I when I was a baby lawyer. We were told that women had to wear high heels and nylons and dress skirts in federal courts, and you could do pantsuits and no nylons in California state court. But then when I moved to Britain, everybody in the height of summer, even every single female lawyer was in nylons. 
And it's so funny how these things change over time. I don't know, how much do you think dress code actually affects culture or morale, Tom? Do you think that the authors have a point here? And, and should people in compliance say better culture, looser standards? What do we think? Well, um, I would disagree, as you did, with the comment that uh, restrictive clothing is inherent to restrictive thinking and that there are no downsides to loosening their dress code. There are. And that could be someone coming to work in a wildly inappropriate clothing. Um, and I won't reveal the gender who would do that. Nevertheless, um, I think loosening, we, we have loosened dress codes. Um, you and I are both lawyers. I, I'm very comfortable with being required to wear a suit or a coat and tie, even not even a coat and tie, a suit to court. I think it's appropriate, the solemnity of the occasion. Um, I've also worn those suits in the summer and it's not nylons, but it's ain't comfortable. Uh, so I certainly understand that. Um, one of the reasons I work from home is I get to set my own dress code. So, um, it, I think loosening, uh, as society loosens its definitions of what is uh, casual, um, business casual, I think we have to, uh, businesses need to respond to that. Uh, there are some situations where formal attire or at least a suit or a woman in uh, a dress and nylons is appropriate. Uh, it was really interesting for me, Christy, at my reunion because we had four going on, 50, 40, 30, 20. And I had to go to the men's room. And as I walked past each one, the 50s, the men and women there for their 50s, they were all dressed in suits or coats and tie. And this was eight o'clock at night. And then, and uh, so I was in the 40s and about a third were in suits, almost about the same number of women in, in uh, dresses. And then when I got to the 30s, it was coats with an open collar. And then the 20s, and everything rocked. Uh, there was nothing inappropriate, but they certainly were not dressed for court or any other formal business occasion. Um, once again, to talk about the generations, I think my daughter's generation has a very different idea about what business casual is. Those who've lived through the pandemic and work from home also have those ideas. So I think a thoughtful reflection on, on your uh, dress code is appropriate. Um, you certainly have to trust your employees. And I've heard numerous examples of people coming to work in inappropriate clothing and at being asked to go home and change or maybe take the day off using the service elevator. Um, and you don't want to have to do that. Uh, so it's a, it's a fluid and dynamic situation. Uh, do you need to be in a suit to do legal work in the office? No. Um, I don't want to have to wear a tie too much anymore, but I will upon occasion. So, um, you know, if, if people are, are reasonable, uh, but you have to be, you have to discipline those who do dress inappropriately. And if you leave it up to the discretion of the employee, you don't have a rule you can point to and say, you violated this. Um, so uh, I, I would be an advocate of loosening the restrictions uh, with appropriate common sense restrictions. Oh, common sense. Never so common. Including in Spain, where disciplinary action has finally reared its head. Tom, what happened in Spain? What's happened since our last talk? So we've talked about the imbroglio of the Spanish uh, Football Federation. 
surrounding the kiss from Spain's top soccer official, Luis Robiales, uh, made on or to Ginny Romero, but uh, Hermoso, excuse me, after the World Cup win. And really just the commentary back and forth. Uh, I felt the kiss was uh, inappropriate, if not requested and or desired. It was neither. Uh, it was a full kiss on the lips. Nothing wrong with a peck on the cheek. But this was a lot more than that, showing uh, intimating intimacy that didn't exist. Um, the uh, Rubialis uh, first said, well, couldn't believe he said this. She wanted it. Uh, yeah. It was, well, you know, she was the one who lifted me up and kissed me. Or hockey. Um, and then um, the Spanish soccer or football coach was fired because he supported her. FIFA suspended him from World Cup action. And uh, prosecutors finally opened a criminal investigation. And that finally led to his resignation. So uh, this went on way too long. But as in every other Me Too movement, it finally happened. So maybe it's going to be the start of the change of a dialogue. We've seen uh, women in the United States, the U.S. Women National Team, lead a great discussion around equal pay. Uh, and they were successful in uh, their uh, desire to get equal pay from men. And uh, so uh, in many ways, I think uh, women's sports are leading discussions around uh, getting equality for places and people who haven't added those in the past. And finally, he resigned. Uh, thank God it finally happened. Um, and hopefully Spain and this Spanish national women's team can all move on together. And celebrate as they well should be doing. Well done, women, ladies. Yay, good job. <laughs> so can we close out with Florida man? Yeah, I was going to say, did Florida man do anything that caught your attention? Of course he did. We've covered Illinois from California. We covered Texas. We have to get to Florida. We have to close with Florida. So this one is just, this one's amazing. Uh, so in the middle of Florida's preparation for its most recent hurricane, Florida man Riza Bellucci got into his homemade person-sized hamster wheel. If you haven't seen this, seriously Google the pictures and launched himself into the Atlantic in an attempt to cross the ocean to arrive in London, England. So it took the U.S. Coast Guard three days to stop him as he repeatedly said he had a bomb on his onboard makeshift vessel. Uh, amazingly, this is not the first time this particular Florida man attempted to cross the Atlantic. It was his fourth. So he previously attempted to cross the ocean in similar homemade vessels in 2014, 2016, and 2021. He is being held on a $250,000 bond. Conditions of the bond include not going to the ocean or boarding a vessel on the ocean. But fear not, Tom, he is not done. USA Today quotes him as saying, quote, I'll never give up my dream. They stopped me four or five times, but I'll never give up, unquote. Keep the dream alive, Florida man. But next time, I recommend choosing a lake. <laughs> uh, something about hamster wheels comes to mind, but... Uh... <laughs> Florida man gets around and now he's out in the Atlantic. I think that's a. Maybe you two could meet in Spain. There we go. All right. Thanks, Tom, so much. Have a great rest of your week. All right. That was great, Christy. And looking forward to what Florida man does next time. 
This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.